0: What we're moving on to now is building a picture of participation in God, a quite breathtaking picture. Obviously, we've just been looking at these two competing anthropologies uh, between Augustine and Nicholas of Cusa, a view that on the one hand, the will can desire no good thing, and on the other, that the will Everything the world desires is good at the end. Uh, It can be terribly distorted, but it is a desire for the good. And we finish by saying that this view of Nicholas's allows for no partition between supernature and nature. And that's what we're going to look at in this module, which I'm calling uh, the cosmos, the cosmos. Is it a liturgy or a mechanism? Now, um, most of us, and it's, it's very important before we then, for the next two modules, go back to an anthropology. I mean, you could say, why do we need a cosmology in order to have a view about what it is to be a human being? So part of the argument, and it's really important to grasp this, I think, is you actually do need a view of the cosmos almost as a prelude to have a view of humanity's role within the cosmos. Um, I thought of an example of this it might seem trivial but I but I think human experience tells us a lot. Um, as I think uh, lots of you would know I spent 35 years of my life uh, leading, building and leading a strategy and innovation consulting firm which uh, I, I sold some time back but it gave me the privilege of looking at large-scale change in large-scale systems and we were tr- taking a humanistic approach to that and if what happened in a lot of organizations facing a change is it impacted upon the individual so I'll just give you a concrete example of that why A view of your individual capability and who you are depends upon where the broader system is. A very common one was imagine somebody who's worked all their life in product sales and they have 30 years of expertise in product description and product knowledge. It's built their sense of self-confidence, their sense of who they are, their identity. And if you were to ask that person, what's your role what are you, and, and, and what's your identity professionally and what are you good at, they would feel very confident. However, and this was happening a lot, what if that broader organisation strategically has recognised that what's commonly called a product push business model is not going to work anymore we actually need to move the broader system away from product push to customer service. And that means the expertise in sales now has completely shifted away from product knowledge to problem solver. Which means I'm a listener, not a talker. And this led to an existential crisis for many people. It just illustrates the fact that how I want to position the human situation always depends on the system we're playing in. So that's an analogy for what we're doing now. Very much depends, when we say what's a human being, on what is the system we're playing in of the cosmos. And uh, as we finished last time, I mean, I think we have inherited, all of us, um, a concept of nature and supernature. You know, we use the word supernatural very freely as some kind of insertion from above to the natural world. We sort of assume, as we talked about last night, the natural world's got its own mechanics and the supernatural world, which could range from anything from faith to ghosts or whatever. It's a two-tiered model of reality. It's th- that's what we swim in. Um, and uh, whilst we might want to fight against it it's good to it's, it, it it's, it's, will begin by critiquing that that world, the Cartesian view um, which would see creation as some kind of independent object God was God's up here somewhere, independent object created away from God and there's this dualism between them which then leads to the idea, if God intervenes, it's a super addition to nature. So, David, just briefly, the, I mean, you critique what you call two-tiered Thomism. Um, I've found it in broader world views, this idea of a two-tiered model of reality, its origins in Descartes, which we all live in. I know you talked about it last night, but can you just characterise that quickly for us, this supernatural-nature nature dualism?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, it's what we started talking about in the last hour, right? That um, the pressure to affirm the gratuity of great, uh, and also to affirm that if God fails to save anyone, it is not an injustice, uh, led to this formulation in the 16th century by the school that for many centuries, was called Thomism. It's not necessarily what Thomas Aquinas taught. It's a very early, modern reading of Thomas. Uh, The the insistence was that the whole of the supernatural realm by nature is discontinuous with the realm of the natural. And that, uh, therefore, the appearance of grace or supernatural ends within the natural is always a super addition from outside. Therefore, God owes you nothing. You, you could, uh, he could have created a world with rational beings in it that had only natural ends. Now, again, how that works when, say, Nicholas would say, or even Augustine, or even the late Thomas would say that uh, your natural desires pre- pre- presume a supernatural horizon of desire. It's hard to say. But this became standard teaching. And that's the two tiers. The supernatural and the natural are not continuous at all. One is a superimposition, a super addition, an entirely gracious supplement to the other.
0: And, and that kind of, let's just call it like a religious dualism between supernature and nature, has corollary and possibly um, what contributed to it was also.
1: A Cartesian. Right, that's the other side of this, is that this is mirrored in, and in some way I I expect complicit in, that other 16th century, 17th century emerging dualism that that finds its consummation in Descartes' thought, but is actually taking shape before then, between (laughs) spiritual or nature or mental nature and physical nature, the latter being now conceived as a machine. Again, wholly discontinuous with mind or soul or God. Those latter being, as it were, extrinsic to these things so that the soul in you inhabits a machine. There's not a natural, there's not an actual unity of body and soul. One is not really involved in the other. One is merely a vehicle driven, so to speak, by the other. And God, it relates to creation in that way, not as uh, in all and through all that wherein we live and move and have our being, but rather the pure, sovereign, creative will out there, which has created a machine that is nothing like him in any significant sense. Uh, so yeah, the, uh, you, you could say that in a sense, in theology, philosophy, the sciences, our metaphysics, our model of nature, early modernity is the age of, of absolute dualisms. Uh, uh, fascinating. Uh,
0: out of interest, David, is anyone, or do you know of any accessible analysis or book that tries to chart the, that unholy alliance between, let's say, Cartesian dualism and religious dualism? anything come to mind?
1: Well, I mean, Charles Taylor has written a lot about it, both in The Sources of the Self and The Secular Age, two books. But um, um, also, I mean, there there are quite a few books. Stephen Tullman's Cosmopolis on the the project of modernity and any number. Um, Michael Buckley's books on the origin of modern atheism.
0: So I, th- I don't think we need to keep going on that. That is a framework I think we can all understand and identify with. What interests me, the project that interests me in my own life, is ridding myself of this dualism, which is an unconscious sea you sort of swim in. And this, the, the, the corollary is a vision that I think requires revelation, to be honest, of this enormous sense of the presence of God in all things. Now. For that, we're going to turn to Maximus the Confessor, who really, in your view, would, would be one of the people who led, was, the, was, the, was, was the, the thought leader in this integrative view of the cosmos and creation. Um, I'll just read out, for instance, uh, I mean, Maximus, as, as I think you'll tell us, is dense. Um, uh, <laughs> His writings are dense. His writings are dense. Oh, yeah. so. <laughs> Maximus is smart. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, uh, beautifully, he wrote a book called The Ambigua and I wish modern Christians would be happy to have a book called The Ambiguities. Um, and uh, in that which is a series of short essays. So yes, although the prose is dense, the thinking is, yeah, it's actually quite accessible, really. I mean, I'd love to do a plain English version sometime. I'm sure you wouldn't, but it does occur to me that it would be a good idea. Well, if you let everyone into the club. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) That reminds me of a story. (laughs) When I was introduced to the sinister side of the academic mind, as a very young consultant, I was writing an article, it was meant to be for Nature magazine, on nanotechnology. The Australian firm was leading the way and they had their scientist who was the, he was the architect of it. And he and I would work late at night trying to write an explanation of what they'd achieved. And I'd write something in accessible plain English give it back to him and he would then complicate it. What was sinister, I can remember this is about 11 o'clock at night, there's just the two of us in the building. What was sinister was he knew exactly what he was doing. He he was not a poor writer. And eventually he sat me down and said, Tony, let me explain what's going on. I've taken 30 years to get to the front of the stage and no one else is gonna get there quickly was very deliberate anyway Uh, an excursus let's go back to uh, Maximus this extraordinary statement uh, just to give a taste for those you haven't read him we believe that God is manifested and multiplied in all things and he recapitulates all things in himself For by virtue of the fact that all things have their being from God, they participate in God in a manner appropriate and proportionate to each, whether by intellect, whether by reason, whether by sensation. Very, very um, mesmerizing view of the integration of all things. And I guess I, I know that last night when we talked about the incommensurable qualities of the mind. We did, yes, go to intention. The other big one that you took us to was the unity of apprehension, which of course dualism contradicts uh, versus the unit unifying. Well, a great unifier, Maximus, can you just give us a brief introduction for those of us who don't know who he was, when he was, why you think he's so, uh, so important?
1: Yeah, I was born at the end of the sixth century, and Floruit in the in the in the in the, the, the seventh, and he um, was even in his own time acknowledged to be a, a master thinker. But he what he he most of his theological career. Occurred in the latter part of the Christological controversies. Whether it's one of the funniest, uh, well, not funniest, most tragic. I say funny in the sense of uh, bizarre facts of history that it was really the debates over the unity of the uh, of the person of Christ that led to the division of the church uh, into different communions: the sort of Byzantine Roman, Chalcedonian, the Alexandrian, the Coptic, or the, the Syrian, uh, all, all these debates were about how do we understand how Christ could be both fully God and fully a man, and yet one. And Maximus is the most brilliant synthetic thinker of that period in many ways, because he, he looked at, uh, well, the, he drew on many different sources. But, uh, you know, you had to be careful in those days. The, it, it, the, his solution to certain problems fell afoul of imperial policy, and at the end of his life, he and Pope Martin of Rome, under whom he had been sheltering, were both arrested by the emperor and taken to, to Constantinople, were arrested by the forces of the emperor. He didn't do it himself. He, he had people for that. Um, and um, the ultimate result was, uh, well, in the case of Maximus, uh, the, the, his right hand was hacked off and his tongue was torn out. And Christian love abundant in those days as it was. This was a gentle fraternal correction, uh, Byzantine style, uh, and he died not long thereafter of his injuries. But what I mean, he he was the subtlest, most brilliant mind of his time. It's his, he is hard to read. Um, he he wrote with extraordinary conciseness in a highly technical prose. Largely, it's believed in order to avoid too much scrutiny from, say, the Byzantine court. I mean, it's if you can't understand it, you may not be scandalized by what you think what you're reading you know you may feel a little stupid and say well let's cut his hand off anyway but in all likelihood you know there' a certain degree of obscurity and there's certain topics in Maximus that like well was he a universalist he maintains an honorable silence on a question of grace you know so um, but the the vision that Tony's talking about, I mean, he he more than anyone else dwelt on the way in which all of creation is not only a theophany, a revelation of God, not in the simple sense, it's a revelation of his power. I mean, you know, even a 16th century Thomas, yeah, it's a revelation of the power, the sovereignty. It's not that. When he says God is multiplied in his creations, he means it's a real mode of divine presence because everything that is has its eternal reality as a logos, okay, a word. Uh, But logos, of course, also means both a rational structure of something, an essence of something, and an utterance, uh, a communication. And all all the loyi, or as the Erasmian savages would say, logoi, all the loyi, of of things have their eternal reality in the one logos of God. So God's own manifestation of his own essence to himself in eternity, in the life of the Trinity, in the light of the Spirit, also is the full manifestation of everything that can and could and will be, so that it that that creation itself occurs within Christ and is nothing other than a rational or when I say irrational, I'm not using that term in the boring sense we use it now. I mean spiritually coherent revelation of God, all of creation, the whole cosmos is created to be a a liturgy in which the nature of God is revealed in endlessly diverse modes of beauty, harmony, consonance, love, ultimately revealing the nature of God. But also then, since the Logos becomes a man in the midst of creation, uh, the Logos then reveals to us what the true nature of that creation is. Mm. Um, So it's, 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 it's not simply that God, again, it's not simply a display of sovereignty. It's not simply a theophany, it's also uh, a revelation of what we are uh, when we're seen in our true uh, aspect, which is as consummated in Christ. Yes, it was, it's
0: a beautifully coherent vision of all of reality. Interestingly, uh, what I wanted to do now is dig a bit deeper into some of that, but, and I'm going to use Ambiguum 7. The, well, that's, uh, the I mean, that's, that's the classic. Yeah, and, that's the classic. and
1: no, no. But really, if you if you just read one of the ambiguum Ambiguum Seven, has much of the system yeah. condensed into it. Yeah. And and the good part about this is it's an
0: essay, not a book. I mean, Ambiguum Seven might be got like, thirty pages long or something like that. So it's, you know, you can do the work on it, um, but. Um, just to give context as to how he was writing, he was interacting with the Cappadocians, particularly Gregory of Nazianzus, whom he loved. And Ambiguum 7, so he, he he was picking out single sentences from Gregory that he thought were quite and quite ambiguous um, and unpacking them. And the sentence he's picked out is Gregory of Nazianzus, who of course is one of the three great Cappadocians. Um, his his homily on poverty and the Christian attitude to poverty and it's really I'm I'm paraphrasing it but this is a very very modern um, dilemma that Gregory was raising and one completely pertinent to our topic of do we have a high anthropology or a low anthropology Um, for a start In in these sentences by Gregory, he calls us portions of God deployed on the earth. So if you want another phrase other than made in the image of God, take Gregory of Nazianzus and tell somebody, including your children, including your enemies, they are a portion of God. But he's saying, what's the mystery of God? What's God doing? If we're portions of God, there's one of two ways. Does God want to keep us down and humble us? so that we, we don't, as it were, overreach and have too high a view of ourselves? Or is it the other way around? Gregory asked. Does God want to lift us up and educate us, is his phrase, so that out of our brokenness and weakness, we could recognize and rediscover that we are portions of God? That, that's the sentence which Maximus opens with. And his essay is a philosophical, um answer to that question where really he's delving into that um second option that God's desire is to lift us up to recognize how we're portions of God so i want to dig a bit deeper I want to, into some of the things he says some of this architect, intellectual architecture the first thing i guess is his view that the whole cosmos is shaped after an archetype. The cosmos he doesn't view, almost like a work of art um, and within that he says our will is like an image ascending to its archetype. Could you explain uh, Maximus's use of this concept that the universe
1: has an archetype that's shaping it? Yeah, uh, this, uh, curiously this is a recurring aspect of patristic exegesis of scripture because you see this played out, and say for instance Moses has an image of the tabernacle that's described at length, then the building of the tabernacle, you have it recapitulated, right? Or Ezekiel, the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. He said, well, he sees it, it's described at length, and then it's described at length again. Uh, and for many of the church fathers, this is an image of, how, of, of all of creation. It has its true and ideal form in God and that is the end towards, and until that end is achieved, it hasn't really been created. What we are, what we see now, is a foreshadowing of that perfected temple, which is the whole of creation. And of course, the temple of creation dwells within the temple of Christ, who is, uh, you know, the, the, the perfect union of, of the divine and the created. And also, you know, this draws. In a sense, upon Gregory of Nyssa too, who draws a distinction between the creation narratives of Genesis one and Genesis two. Genesis one is the, is the ideal eternal creation. Uh, Genesis two is the broken reality of what, how creation now exists on its way to that. So that the man, or you know, the Adam, or or Adam and Eve of the first creation really means the full body of all human beings throughout time, united in the body of Christ as seen from God's eternity. And only secondarily, God, knowing how history will unfold, do we have the creation of individual humans, this Adam, this Eve. Mm. And i that. uh This structure is just a a running theme through a great deal of patristic exegesis, that God's act of creation is an eternal reality that's already accomplished and complete in Him. And we know what its nature is. It's where every tongue joyously praises every knee bow. And the creation as we see it now is the becoming of that glorified reality in which everything will shine with the divine nature and all of reality uh, will be suffused with the divine glory yes. and be the perfect theophany. And it it um,
0: it sounds profound, philosophical, hard to grasp. But actually, uh, quite simply, it we can look to our human experience, David. I've often thought on this that. The paradigm with which we, are, which we think about the cosmos, which is delivered to us, tends to be physics, um, you know, science, You know, how many billion years and so on. And um, so the whole paradigm, that's fine, but that, that is saying, well, you should think about the cosmos as physics and then you try to put creation into that. Whereas there's an entirely other paradigm you can think about that I think is just as good and probably better, which is what you've alluded to, which is art if you think of the, of the cosmos as art. Now, art or architecture, architecture is a good example. We took you, David, to the Opera House and you enjoyed that greatly. Now, today the Opera House is realised, but we all know that in reality it began as an idea, an archetype that was purely in someone's mind, one person, um, and the fashioning of He had a vision or a picture of what did not exist, which he wanted to bring into existence, which, as you were talking about, the way that, for instance, the temple is always described, there is actually great honor given to the design side of it. Um, It's actually specified. We're just looking at design specifications, really, that then follows the building. Our human experience explains this, which we can then say, well, this is we're just following in the footsteps of God, who's done that with the universe.
1: The w- with of course the distinction that, um, that, and this is why it's important in the Patristic tradition. If, sorry, uh, that we as sort of co-creators with God, as or uh, you know, in, in Paul's language, uh, in synergy with God, co-workers with God—a phrase that uh, Paul uses again and again and that the Church Fathers read as meaning more than just doing God's will, it meant actually contributing at every level of, uh, of our lived experience, uh, that in God's case, of course, this is already, from the eternal vantage, accomplished. Already, you know, it is so, and we, in time, are on the way to an eternal reality that is always already the case with God of a redeemed and glorified creation.
0: Yeah. And yet, as well as that, can you fit in? Another thing I picked up in Maximus is that creation is, to some extent, ongoing. He says, yeah. by his word or logos and his wisdom, he created and continues to create all things. Right. Dynamic picture.
1: Well, uh, this too, of course, this is this is something that was borrowed from Stoic metaphysics, and others, but then expanded in Christian thought, is that, that creation is not like the making of a machine. It is the giving to life of yeah. something itself that is itself an act, yeah. a poetic act of creation, yeah. so that essentially the seeds of things are implicit in nature. So God, in allowing the world to develop into what it is, God is also actively creating in it in his logos as so sort of the rational principle that's infusing all things and giving life. He's, there's a wonderful... Um, uh, a figure from the 18th century in Germany, uh, Hamann, Hamann, who uh, was sort of almost a church father out of time in a sense. He lived in the Lutheran world, but his all of his impulses of mind, and he speaks of God as the poet in the beginning of days and the critic in the end of days. You know, uh, uh, who in every moment is. Um, writing every line by letting it uh, flow forth from its predecessor.
0: You know. And that's what we're participating in as co-workers, yeah. the ongoing development.
1: I mean, that's yeah. very, I mean, again, I just, that, that term, I, I, have a, you know, I have a Calvinist friend, I, I really do, Uh, he's more of a Barthian than you know. His name's Bruce McCormick, but he has real problems with this language of deification. He's a very prominent Barthian theologian, um, and uh, he 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 finds the language of synergy between the divine and the human deeply troubling, right? Except that it's it's just and that's Paul's language, synergy. Is is you know what he describes us as being, and in the patristic tradition again, I have to emphasise this doesn't just mean we're the deputies of God. It means we're active participants through our own creativity in the in the creative life uh, in God's creative life yeah. in His creation.
0: So our word synergy is is from the Greek exactly became co-workers working with. So we could say we're. Synerg- in sy- synergist with God. Yeah, yeah. Um, I want to return, you've already mentioned it, but it's such a profound and uh, persistent archetype and innovation, I think, for Maximus, as far as I understand it, which is Logos. We're all familiar with Logos, but he developed from Logos, Logoi, um, and that's, Sorry. do you want to check the score? Or? No, no, I thought I had the sound off, excuse oh.
1: me. Well, while I'm at it, now. okay. <laughs> three to who? Alas to the forces of evil at the moment.
0: <laughs> so, yeah. um, Logos and Logoi, uh, I found that profound. Can you develop that for us again?
1: Well again for him all of create you know all we are are words within the Word of God that is utterances within the utterance of God's eternal utterance of himself. Everything that is a creature has, a, has already its place eternally within the divine life. Uh, you are an utterance of God. You are a logos of God, too. That means that all that you truly are can only be understood in light of, of the logos made manifest. And in our history, the logos has become manifest as this man. So if you want to see the true nature of yourself as a creature, but specifically as a human being, if you look to him, uh, the shape of the human as the revelation of God has been given perfectly. There's absolute transparency between who Jesus of Nazareth was and who the eternal Son of God is. But in a a richer, in a fuller sense, he's the rational center of all creation, the thing, the one in whom and for whom all of this holds together. Uh, And so the logos of everything finds its illumination uh, in him. Ultimately, that's what, I mean, this is Maximus's, here he's following uh, origin, of course, origin is one of the unnamed influences, in and all because because origin, by that time, had been uh, illegitimately condemned by by a moron of an emperor. Uh, and uh, well, actually, hadn't been officially. Cannot come to think of it. It's actually anyway. That's a different matter. Um, the uh, th- this this notion that. That he draws uh, from Origin already. That 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 the, every uh, soul and spirit is as. And of course, I should mention Gregory of Nazianzus in the in the Ambiguum Seven is quoted as saying something that's drawn from Origin. So the quotation goes two steps back, uh, but Maximus could discuss it through Gregory. Who at this time is regarded as one of the fathers of the church he can't name origin whose con- who's now uh, whose reputation has been has put him outside the uh, recognized bounds of orthodoxy that everything I- is already in some sense God in becoming God we are becoming what we are in the, in the creation becoming the glorified presence of the divine it's becoming what it essentially is. Yes
0: uh, and this is a great contrast I, mean, I think you, you say that uh, you know, Maximus deliberately was setting aside a negative theology you know, God is totally unknowable um, we uh, we can't find language for him at all the idea of logoi I'd call that like design principles I suppose from the logos
1: Right. I mean, if he's quite pious. Obviously, no finite mind can understand the infinite fully, but it, he, uh, like Gregory of Nyssa, believes that this is not a limitation in an absolute sense, because throughout eternity we're uh, we're to enter ever more into you know this epektasis, this stretching forth into God, which he also calls uh, you know ever moving rest, aikinitos, ever moving rest. And uh, he makes a distinction between episteme and gnosis. Uh, in Greek, there you know, these two words for knowledge, uh, an epistemic grasp of something is a factual knowledge about it. I mean, broadly speaking, whereas gnosis is direct, uh, direct, immediate knowledge of encounter that goes beyond the conceptual. In a different ambiguum, he says that That we we pass beyond the conceptual. That's, of course, the threshold that can never really grasp the essence of God, in order only to enter into this intimate and eternally expanding embrace in the intimacy of Gnosis. This is why in Greek, Gnosis can also mean the nuptial union of man and woman. It's when you see the Biblical, you know he did not know her until, I, I mean, really that that, that that notion of knowledge as imme- of immediate acquaintance that goes too deep for mere words and con- concepts. So.
0: Yeah, I, I love the, the part of the Ambiguum when he quotes, I think David, you know, yearning for God in the Psalms, yeah. Moses, uh, the entering of the rest, the, there's this um, beautiful picture of entering a rest and yet ever moving beyond it. Yeah. Uh, but the, the end of all things is this uh, this this rest, uh, quoting what he says, the end of the motion of all things is to rest within eternal well-being, just as their beginning was being itself, which is God, the giver of being, and the bestower of the grace of well-being. Right. Yeah, beautiful phrase. Well. I just want to finish my, uh, with a, with one point, and then we'll have a few questions. And but, then... but
1: can I just make one? Yes. Just sir. notice there that that what differentiates this from what became the modern picture is that in no sense then is creation an extrinsic thing related over to God, over against God. All of it occurs not only within the divine nature, but within the Trinity itself, within the Father expressing and knowing himself in the sun in the light of the spirit that is also where and how the, uh, nature creation occurs and is sustained and has its end. So we're always already yeah. immersed in the uh, divine.
0: I mean they just had a huge picture of God, uh, Yeah, well. not a compact metalized one or Maximus did. But again like with Nicholas it was a discipline not just a vision. Um, The the quote I wanted to end on, um, what he sees is this picture as charting the course for discipleship. I mean, I don't know about you, but discipleship is a phrase I have a lot of problems with in the evangelical world. It immediately degrades into behaviors. And I can tell you which five come up. Um, And uh, it just seems to be uh, an empty concept that quickly goes into behaviorism or pharisaism. Anyway, that's my view. he says this this is his view of discipleship the goal of each thing is its beginning and end for it is from the beginning that one received being and participation in what is naturally good and it is by conforming to this beginning through the inclination of one's will that one hastens to the end diligently adhering to the praiseworthy course that conducts one unerringly to their point of origin. Having completed their course, such a person becomes God, receiving from God to be God, for they freely choose to add the likeness to God by means of the virtues in a natural movement of ascent through which they grow in conformity to their own beginnings. Uh, it's an extraordinary um, concept, but it's, you know we're, we're growing towards our beginning, we're growing towards our origin, yeah. but it's an act of will and decision to keep going there.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, um, with that, uh, let's take a opportunity for some questions. Um, oh, we've got a mic coming. You want to just check the score quickly? It hasn't changed. Yeah, it hasn't David. Changed. I'm sorry to
1: say. Probably two innings
0: to go. Well, they're moving toward their end. That's right. So, some questions. If you just, Rob, uh, David, David, I was just wondering if you could uh, talk to the the
1: idea of adoption in in Paul's language and how that relates to this uh nature supernatural this extrinsic idea that we're somehow outside of the family of God yeah of course the the, the term for adoption in Greek uh, uh, literally just means uh, making a son making an offspring the making a son mean you know making a son so it doesn't it's not uh, a term that uh, has simply the con uh, the connotation of uh, a legal fiction whereby someone is admitted to an inheritance. It it actually it was understood as a real lineation. You know, we think, I think, I think we you know we we, we create what for the. Paul, I don't think is the case at all, the notion that adoption is something extrinsic to our nature. Rather, I think that for him it's ra- it's like um, Romans 11, again, that, that frequently mistranslated verse, which I fixed in my second edition, but I failed to fix. No, I'm sorry. Actually, I blame myself too for failing, for listening to, uh, hearing in my head, um, past uh, translations and not paying sufficient attention to the Greek there where he talks about grafting in the wild olive Um, that's usually translated in a way that makes it seem as if there's an opposition between nature and uh, of course he's not really talking about nature there he's talking about lineation and the grafting in is a real is a, is a real union of uh, with the true root that is Christ. It's um, not and the term outside. You know, we often say that which those who are grafted in contrary to nature. That's not what that's not what par, doesn't mean. That it means outside the normal lines of deline- of lineation of of so. Um, I don't think the language of adoption in Christ uh, for Paul means anything other uh, than that for which from the beginning of time all things were created which is to find their proper place in Christ and in this world that we know this because we're made sons in the Son or daughters in the Son. you know. Is that what you're asking about, uh, you yeah. um, know? Um, I've seen the picture of God's relationship to his creation uh, described in orthodox circles as panentheism, but I believe that that has a slightly different meaning to the, the word pantheism or panentheism in Eastern religions. And I was just wondering, do you think that the two concepts are the same or in what ways do they differ? Yeah, I, I think that both words uh, should be avoided most of the time unless they're, they're given very clear definitions. And I think that opposition is false for the most part. First of all, what they mean is uh, uh, the assumption that there's something called Hindu pantheism, we get this from, uh, say, Edward phaser and other ignoramuses who, I mean, and other people who are ignorant of the thing they're talking about Did I say ignoramus? I, I didn't mean that um, I mean, in, in, in every form of Vedanta there is also this, there's the transcendent God and a dependent creation, and also God is fully present in that creation, and that creation is fully present in God, and there's not an absolute division, but there is a, there is a distinction. Well, I see that as the patristic vision too, of God and creation. I, I, I see no, uh, I see actually no difference at all. Um, the most austere firms of Advaita Vedanta might you know, my question is: This monism so absolute that it leaves no room for creation to have any sort of independent existence at all. But that doesn't, uh, to me, that's not a problem either. First of all, it it isn't, but but creation doesn't have an independent existence. I mean, I, I've always found that a very odd question. There's nothing independent. What what Christian? What what, what most? traditional Christian ontology says is very simple. The, and, and I'll use the Thomistic language just to prove I'm not being Eastern. is that um, in God, being is one. Essence and existence are one and the same thing. In finite reality, they are a constant, synthetic, dynamic relation. That mode of, uh, is, the, is an infinite difference between God and creation except that it occurs within an infinite oneness of God and creation since everything comes from God. our essence and our existence are both divine impartations that we experience in a radically different mode but what we're experiencing is our participation in God. So yeah I, I don't I don't think those sorts of distinctions hold. I'm quite happy to say Christianity is a panentheism or even that it's a pantheism if you define it correctly, you know. Define those words correctly, yeah.
0: Any other questions? To finish with this one, yeah. yeah. Rob? When I was reading Bolgakov's Systematics, he seems to reject the whole God is a first cause or God is a cause of any kind. Yeah. Um, and he says that God is the creator, everything else is the creation. He says that's the fundamental distinction. But then Maximus the Confessor frames Pheosa as we become uncreated. So I'm wondering, do, if we become uncreated, do we stop being creatures? Do we cross that divide?
1: Um, Yeah. uh, You see, it's, 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 Bulgakov actually isn't saying something different here from, from Maximus, uh, I mean, well, he just didn't like the term causality in our modern sense being applied to God. He wasn't talking about the term etia that you find in Aristotle, for instance, he is talking specifically of cause in the modern sense as if God and creation are two things, one of which causes the other, right? Uh, you know, rather, He prefers, yeah, just as the way a poem is at once different from and yet entirely a continuous expression of and of the poet who is fully within the poem and the poem is fully within the poet, in a sense. That's just a better way of thinking of creation. So your actual question is, do we cease being creatures? Um, You know, in a sense, for, for Maximus, we do we truly become uncreated. When we return into our first ends, we achieve uh, our eternal reality uh, as what we are from everlasting. Uh, The creature-creator distinction becomes meaningless. There's a point of indistinction. And yet, it remains, because it remains a relation. So what remains is the relation of love between that which has its infinity in the form of an ever-moving rest and an apectasis and the one who is the fullness of that being into which we're ever-moving. But yeah, um, you know, there, there is a sense for, for Maximus in which we truly become the uncreated, which is that we become our true beginnings, because the, the Logi in the Logos are not creatures, they're not created. They actually dwell within the eternal logos of God. They are his own essence, as known in its filial manifestations. We might, uh, oh, there's one more up there, one more question.
0: Uh, Oh, there's a couple. Okay. yep, Richard.
1: David, could I just ask you about the place of chaos Oh sorry, was that the end of the question? <laughs> uh, place of chaos ellipsis question mark. Yeah. That sounds good. Well, do you mean you mean the language of chaos in the Old Testament is that which is organized? Do you mean chaos in a modern, you know, mathematical sense? of fractals and and Jeff Goldblum in Jurassic Park and uh, is that, you mean the biblical yeah. Yeah, um, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what the place of chaos is, except if you want to know what the patristic reading of these things these things are. Um, Gregory of Nyssa has a comment on how we should translate the the opening of Genesis, because of course. Uh, as we all know, the you know in the beginning, you know, the, the, what we translate as the, the, the world was waste and wild, or was you know unformed. You know, bohu, you know, obscure words in ancient Hebrew that we we actually don't know the meaning of. We think that uh, that tohuwabohu. Gosh, I'm not awake here. It, a tehom is the the chaos of the unformed ocean from which all things are... Uh, but, it, um, you know, some philologists uh, attach that to the image of the, the sea god, the leviath, and Tiamat, and Behemoth, the land monster, things to be tamed. And you get this imagery in the Psalms as well, right? But for Gregory of Nyssa, this is all... He reads all of this allegorically, as the fathers did. There's no real force of chaos outside of God. What chaos is, is the patiency, uh, the potentiality, the openness of all reality to the activity of God. It just waits for his forming end. It doesn't have an independent existence. It's sort of like the ontological substrate of form in Aristotle is prime matter. It doesn't exist apart from the form. But it's, but it's part of the logical predication of what a thing is. There's that which is just the pure potency of what God, that, that, every, that is available, that God, God can make everything what it is. So Gregory says, really, toho should be translated as udhin ke udhin, nothing and nothing. Uh, and elsewhere, another father uh, suggests udhin ke midhin, Uthen in the sense of nothing at all and Mithen in the sense of nothing yet. Um, so anyway, I'm just uh, it's a long way of getting around. I mean, the, the idea of chaos in the tradition is not that there's really something out there that God must wrestle into submission. It's rather that in the act of creation there's both the freedom and openness of becoming and the form uh, that God imposes on it, and both are constant realities. In fact, who was I think it's uh, it's Bulgakov himself, uh, following Pavel Florensky, another of the sociologists, for whom chaos is not really chaos, I and mean, that's not you know the word that's used in either the Septuagint or the Hebrew, but it just means the becoming nature, the free act of becoming, that's part of the dynamism of finite existence. Uh, I think as you're saying, that um,
0: somewhat similar angle, perhaps, on this, we're used to perhaps the word chaos having uh, bad connotations, uh, moral connotations. In my world, which is innovation, you don't get anywhere until you unframe everything. You disorder everything. It's actually a great truth. Um, A lot of our work used to be the ability to actually create chaos. Um, And I think the great poem that captures that, if you want to, just from a cognitive point of view, human experience of creativity would be uh, Kubla Khan. Um, uh, Where, you know, the image of the volcano is almost like the breaking down of frozen molecular frameworks only when they're broken down do they become malleable to be shaped into something different. So there's a positive view of chaos, is what I'm saying, in our experience. That's actually really central to the whole process of innovation. Um, let's have one more. Well, there's more than one more. Well, I will have one more. Then we'll have a break because those with questions can have a bit of a chat to David. Yeah. If we. Um, become our true beginning, if that is the goal and the end.
1: Oh, sorry, I'm trying to see where this is going
0: How does, the, oh, there. how is it different um, in, in that, is our experience remembered? Because if we start off in, uh, in a position of innocence, I'm thinking of Blake, um, Songs of Innocence and Experience. If we go back to our beginnings, is it with or without All of our experiences.
1: Um, Yeah I mean there are different ways of understanding of course when they said we become our true beginning I mean for Maximus our true beginning is something we we have not experienced yet in all likelihood that is it's an eternal fact about ourselves that for us in the realm of time of Kronos is that which lies at the end of our emergence from nothingness. But in another sense, we have a spiritual knowledge. It's funny, you get that there is a Platonic recollection and a knowledge that that innocence is more fundamental to our nature than transgression. And that's an old question, of course, in Christian thought, is there, does experience is experience necessary for the understanding of our innocence and for the fully for the full embrace of our, of our innocence? Um, yes, I mean experiences, but does the experience have to entail Auschwitz? You know, and they would say no. You know, fallenness isn't necessary, but growing into our last end, which is our first beginning. Is required, you know. uh, Maximus is quite good on this, and Bulgakov is brilliant on this, on, uh, you know, what it is to be a spiritual nature is to have a past in real non-being. And so there really is an openness to a future. Otherwise, if God just created us in a state already determined, rather than as this movement towards an end already given us as our true beginning, he would be creating just uh, dramatic fictions, not real persons, not living spirits. Well, with that we might uh, finish
0: this section um, and perhaps from that question, leave ourselves with this wonderful phrase of a cosmic liturgy. It isn't just an integrated cosmos. Our part in it, I think, David, is priests of of the cosmic liturgy. uh, which, which was a one of the great visions of Maximus. Okay, uh, what we're going to do now? Have morning tea. I know some of you have already had morning tea. Have a second morning tea. Um, we'll take roughly half an hour or so. Um, you haven't had yours yet. No, I'm sorry. Oh, David hasn't had his. Um, and uh, we will come back to the fourth module, having set this kind of picture of. The cosmos and the fourth module will be on the incarnation as the template for humanity and in in a sense the debate between a small view of the incarnation and an overarching view of the incarnation. There are books for sale. I forgot to mention Matthew's wonderful book. Um, What's the title again Matthew? Disrupting Mercy. Uh, Some of you Probably heard our interview with uh, Matt early on, but it's a really profound book, applying rich concepts of mercy to the end of to the battle with the slave trade, but taking a very different point of view. So I really commend if, if those subjects interest you. You know, how you, how can because I think one of the powerful points about what you're doing, Matt, is it's kind of translating a a very benign picture of grace into a, a very broken social system, which That's your calling, so thanks for that work. It's been shortlisted for Christian Book of the Year. Well done, okay. All right, we'll come back in about half an hour.